My text this afternoon is taken from Isaiah, chapter 40. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust in the balance. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing. Vanity. He bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as a vanity. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no strength, he increaseth might. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. again, Hope Ames. Uh, Eric Little um, is the character that's portrayed there in the film Chariots of Fire. It's an older movie. It won, Academy, it won the Academy Award for Best Picture uh, years before I was born. Um, and so if it looks a little grainy and older, uh, that's because it is. But, but it's, it's a beautiful film. Eric Little was uh, the fastest man in the world in the 1920s. And he represented Great Britain in the Olympics. The day before he won a gold medal in the 400 meters, he, uh, he preached a sermon at a church in Paris, and he read from that scripture. It was the scripture that you heard Brian read today, Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 through 31, it, it says again, if I can get to the right page, even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. How reassuring and refreshing is that? It's like an alarm going off ready <laughs> in our brains, and we need it. I'm sorry, I need a little bit of comic relief in my life right now. I think the most beautiful part of that entire scene is the last part. As Eric Little is reading this, the filmmakers, they put the corresponding images on the screen of Eric Little's teammates falling and losing and hurting. They didn't win, but especially his friend who lost in the steeplechase and fell in his event, he's supported and he's, supported and he's surrounded by family, by friends. He's loved and he's comforted. When life gets tough, we need to be comforted. It says in Isaiah chapter 40 at the very beginning, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone. I'd like for the sad days to be gone 
And the truth is, is that this prophecy is a prophecy about the future, but it's said in the present and past tense to remind us that if God says that it's going to happen, it's as good as it has happened. When God says it, you have the assurance that it will come to fruition, that it will come to life. And this is so important for us because when life gets tough, we need that comfort. The context of this passage is different than our context today, but there's some similarities, aren't there? The context in Isaiah chapter 40 is that God's people, Israel, they're suffering. They've been suffering, and there's more suffering on the way. But the prophet promises them, because it's God's word, comfort is coming. Your sad days are over. The Lord is here and with you. When life gets tough, the Lord himself is here to comfort you. How reassuring and refreshing is that? We've got this new series, and it's called When Life Gets Tough. We didn't plan it three days ago. We didn't plan it three weeks ago. Interestingly, this series was planned a year ago. About a month ago, my dad, who planned this series, he said to the campus pastors, you know, I'm, I'm not really looking forward to the When Life Gets Tough series. It's at the beginning of summer. It's kind of like we've got good things happening. Maybe it just won't be relevant. But how interesting is it? Life gets tough in the most unexpected times. And life got really, really tough in a whole new way this week for a lot of us. We talked about it earlier. Let's mention it again. Let's highlight it. Let's note what's happening in our community at Cornerstone Church on Thursday night. There's a tragic shooting. It's horrible. It's wrong. And when these kinds of things happen and we're suffering and we're hurting, we go through a week that's so emotional like this because we care for our brothers and sisters in Christ at Cornerstone Church. Jesus says, when you do good things for somebody else, it's as if you're doing it for me. Specifically, he says, when you feed the hungry... When you serve the poor, when you visit the prisoners, when you do those things, you're doing it to me. Jesus so closely associates with this family that when something happens to them, it happens to him. And so for us, when something happens to someone else in the body of Christ, it's happening to us. Let's have that kind of close relationship with the other churches in this congregation, or in this community. What happened at Cornerstone the other night was tragic and devastating and wrong. And so we feel that. And when these kinds of things happen, and when it's more than close to home, but it's actually home, we're left with questions. When life gets tough, we're left with questions. And one of the questions that we ask is, does God still remember us? Does God still care about us? Has God left us? I'm reminded of Romans chapter 8. The Bible gets so real. And I want to invite you to read these next couple of slides with me. I want you to read them with me. We'll go through it kind of slowly. But I think that it's good for the people of God to read God's word together. To believe in this hope, to believe in this assurance, to have the word of God speak to you. Forget the preacher. Let the word of God breathe through your lips this morning. Would you read this with me? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. God gives you this word, and because it's his word, it's as good as done. God is present in this space. He is here with us. 
says in the Bible that Jesus wept. He joins the people in sorrow. He's here today. And while there's joy that awaits and we can rejoice and celebrate of all sorts of things, joy and sorrow do sing a duet. And while joy is in this space, sorrow is in this room today too. But God is in this room especially. And he joins us. So the author of Romans, Paul, he says, I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced that nothing could ever separate us from the power of God's love. Let's emphasize that really quick. I am convinced. The word that is for I am convinced, it is patho. Everyone say patho. Patho, what it truly means is persuaded of what's trustworthy. And it's the root word for the Greek word for faith, which is pistis. To be persuaded of what is trustworthy. A lot of times we think that faith is absolute positive certainty. I would never be wrong. I have no doubts about it whatsoever. Faith means that you can't see it, but you believe it anyway. Faith insinuates that there might be some doubt. Faith insinuates that there might be some questions but I'm still persuaded of what's trustworthy. So my question for you this morning is what deserves your trust? When life gets tough, what deserves your trust? What is it that's out there? Go ahead and take a look at this next slide with me. It promises us again in Romans chapter five, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and the character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment and God's saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe in me. I want you to hope in me. I've got these things for you. Can you trust in me? God's pleading with us the case. I'm worthy of your trust. I deserve to be trusted. I've done everything for you. I will always be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Scripture reminds us of this over and over again. And maybe as Christians, when we sit in these church circles, the things that we say out of our mouths sound a whole lot like, yes, I always believe that. I never doubt. I've got perfect faith. But the truth is, the Bible also talks about the moments of doubt and the moments of seclusion, the moments of isolation, when it feels like God is quiet. Psalm chapter 22 is one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, and it's also one of the most doubt-filled statements in the entire Bible. It leads to promise, it leads to faith, it leads to hope, but it starts like this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Has anybody groaned lately? You know what a groan is? A groan is when you don't have words anymore. You know what a groan is? When you take the breath in and you're hoping that by the time that you breathe out, you'll have a word and it just doesn't show up. Would you just groan with me this morning? Sometimes it feels good. You ready? <sighs> That's my groan today. And it sounds funny, but it's real. Every day I call out to you, the psalmist says, but you don't answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Man, where are you? What are you doing? You seem so quiet. Go ahead and show me the next slide. When we talk about trust, sometimes it's important for us to acknowledge what trust is not. Sometimes the biggest frustration about faith is that we're not getting a quick answer. We cry out to God and we expect an immediate response Maybe God's more thoughtful and more loving and more caring than to throw answers at us before we're ready to hear them or before the world's ready to embrace them. Trust is not earned quickly. I think that it's important that we say that. Trust is not earned quickly. We live in a culture and a setting 
where we emphasize speed and delivery over power and quality and fulfillment. I'd rather get my fast food than spend time in the kitchen and prepare the meals for the week. 100%. Trust is not earned quickly. A lot of people these days, when a tragedy happens, we so quickly throw out answers, we so quickly throw out statements, we so quickly throw out solutions, we so quickly try to explain the problem away. Have you ever had such a tragedy in your life and someone's just trying to explain it away and you know it's not helping? We can't just explain it away because it doesn't happen that fast. In Isaiah chapter 40, God gives a stronger word than that. He says, who are you going to compare me with? I'm the holy one. Look up into the heavens. Who created the stars? What's God inviting us to do in this moment? He's saying, literally, Look back into time. See the stars in the sky, the light that's reaching the earth for the first time in millions of years. I created them. I've been around forever. I've been earning trust. I've been showing up. I've been here for you. Where were you when I created the universe? And if I've arranged everything throughout all of history just for you to be here today, don't you think that I'll be here for you? Don't you think that I'll be here for you now? Here I am. I've been there since the creation of the stars. I haven't been trying to snap your trust into me in a moment. I've been earning your trust for all of eternity. Since the beginning of creation, I've been arranging and intertwining all the events just so that you'd be here. Don't you think that I love you? Don't you think that I'm worthy of your trust? I'm earning it. I'm showing up. It says this also in Isaiah chapter 40. To whom will you, excuse me, even the youth will become weak and tired, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not, and not grow weary. I want to focus on that word trust again. Because in the King James Version, maybe you've read this before, it says, for those who wait on the Lord, they will find new strength. Now, quite literally, in the Hebrew, it is wait. And who here likes waiting? Nobody likes waiting. Let's go ahead and replace that word with a very accurate translation of it, just, but those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. Those who wait on the Lord, you're going to find new strength. Wait. I hate waiting. I hate it. I loathe it. It's not fun for me. Yesterday I ran the Damn to DSM half marathon. I saw some of you there. You were running. That was really cool. That was really awesome. The worst moment of the entire day is when you're standing at the start line and the race is 20 seconds away, and you're watching your watch, and it gets to that moment, it's supposed to start, and they say, ah, hold on just a second. You've got these nerves, you've got these jitters. Now, in this particular race, we're standing on the Sailorville Dam. The Dam to Dam half marathon goes from the Sailorville Dam to downtown Des Moines. Now, when you're standing at the Sailorville Dam, you can see the very tops of the buildings in downtown Des Moines. It's kind of neat, it's kind of exciting, but that's also intimidating because you know that that's where the finish line is. It's kind of far away. It's 13.1 miles away, and that's kind of scary because you're thinking, how am I going to get from here to there? Now, if you've ever run any sort of road race in your life, whether that's a mile or a marathon, you know that every single race has that overly excited runner who's just excited to be there and wants everyone else to enjoy it as much as they are. Are you ready to run? I love running. I haven't stopped running since last year, just nonstop. You might be surprised. I am not that person. <laughs> I love to run. I really do. 
But I get to the front, I get to the start line, they're playing the national anthem, I'm just putting my head down, they're like, oh, he's having a moment. No, I'm debating if I'm gonna leave. I get nervous, I get scared, I'm just waiting, I'm, ah, how am I gonna get from here to there? I'm like waiting the suffering. Anybody here feel like they're like, they're like waiting on the edge of knowing that a season of suffering is coming? You're like, ah, oh, I just, mm. We're just already grieving something that hasn't happened yet, but we're just, it's, it's bound to happen. Life is tough now, but it's about to get even tougher, it feels like. That was true for Israel in Isaiah chapter 40. Oh, man. And what is it that draws you to still stand at that start line and take the first step? What is it? It's in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 again. Remember, it says that in our problems and trials, we can still rejoice. Because in our problems and trials, we have the opportunity to, to develop endurance. And the endurance develops strength of character. And the strength of character develops hope for salvation. And the scripture also tells us there that in that hope, we will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. But the truth is, the road between a trial and hope is sometimes long and grueling. The Bible's real about that. Say It doesn't say, in your problems and trials, you're always hopeful. It says the problems and trials lead to endurance, which leads to strength of character. Endurance and strength of character, it takes guts and it takes grits for the grueling road. Guts and grits, guts and whatever, it's grittiness. I'm hungry, I would like some grits. That's the food, right? Am I getting that right? Okay. It takes guts to go on this road. And what is it? How do I know it's going to be worth it? Well, there's only one way to find out. And maybe that random runner who's going around telling everybody they ran five miles before the race, I'm ready to go. Maybe they just might know what they're talking about. But there is only one way to find out. You take that step. Even when it feels like the end is so far away. I know a man who didn't know when the end would be. His name is Larry Spencer, um, and he died just last week. Larry uh, was a significant person in my childhood. Uh, Larry and his wife, Ann, were so kind to my siblings and I because our parents um, just kind of worked weird hours. My dad being a pastor, uh, pastoral hours are sometimes off and weird and different. And um, my mom was working at the airport, and so her hours were weird and different. And so, like, if we'd have something to go to in the summer, oftentimes Larry and Ann would drive us to those places. I remember Larry would specifically drive me to basketball camp in the summer for a whole week. He was so kind, and he was so great. The interesting thing is I really knew nothing about Larry when he was driving me to these camps. Later on, I found out that Larry's a war hero. Larry was the 75th uh, prisoner taken captive in Vietnam. In 1966, his plane was shut, was shot down, and they brought him into the Hanoi Hilton. And for six days, short of seven years, he was tortured mentally and physically, waiting, waiting, waiting. Rather than me tell you his story, I invite you to check out this clip from Christmas Eve that we showed in 2008. So another older clip today, but it's worth listening to the words of Larry. There were two planes from our squadron that were escorting an Air Force reconnaissance plane over the Gulf. And uh, through a series of events, uh, we and the airplane in which I was the radar intercept officer was shot down by a surface-to-air missile right over the coast at uh, Than Hoa, which was about 90 miles south of Hanoi. Uh, came down in my parachute out in the water. 
the, their equivalent of the National Guard came out in a log boat, picked me up in about 15 minutes, uh, turned around and headed for shore. Uh, as soon as it got dark, they stuck me in a Jeep and uh, about six o'clock the next morning, we pulled up in front of what became to be known as the Hanoi Hilton, the old French prison in downtown Hanoi. I was in Hanoi just short, well, as in North Vietnam, just short of seven years. It was 2,552 days. I was around the 75th American captured in North Vietnam. You discover that you can get beat up pretty good, and that you heal from that amazingly well. The scrapes and scratches go away, the black and blue spots go away. The, the physical aspect of it is easier to deal with than the mental aspect. The fear of the unknown was, uh, it's very hard to describe, but it is very real. It's under times of stress that we all realize that we can't cope with all this by ourselves. We need help. And for us too. Boy, guys, didn't take long to re remember the 23rd Psalm and repeat that every morning because sometimes we felt like, yay, though I go in the valley of the shadow of death. The, that was pretty understandable. The fear no evil was kind of a little shaky sometimes, you know. But it's that, that basic, the basic stories and the basic belief are what sustains you when things get bad. I don't claim to be any smarter today than I would have been otherwise, but I do claim that I learned some very valuable lessons at a much earlier age than I would have otherwise. And that's what has enriched my life over these last 42 years since 1966 when I got shot down. It has been a rich, wonderful experience, and I appreciate it so much more than I would have otherwise. Larry knew just how tough life would get. Every morning in the Hanoi Hilton, he and his fellow prisoners would read, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He had hope. He had hope that was rooted in strength of character, that was rooted in endurance, that happened in the midst of problems and trials. He was waiting. He was waiting. And sometimes waiting feels like it's a very heavy weight, right? Sometimes waiting is the heaviest thing that you'll do. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. But the interesting thing is that when we are waiting for God, we are not waiting with burdens. Instead, in the waiting with God, we are invited to give our weights, to give our burdens to him. Think about it like this. After almost every single race that I run, my wife is there and she's cheering me on. And yesterday she had her little puppy there and it was so fun and cute and couldn't even take it. And and after a marathon that I ran in Fargo last fall, I could not walk after the race. And so Abby grabs my bags and she says, you wait here, I'll go get the car. And the interesting thing is as I waited there, she took on my weights. She took on my burdens. And I couldn't see her anymore, I couldn't hear her anymore, but she was going and she was getting my delivery, if you will. Now that's just a real silly example to explain to you God takes on our burdens. You do not have to carry these burdens any longer. God says, let me carry them. The scriptures say, cast your burdens unto Jesus, for he cares about you. 
When God's asking you to wait, he's not asking you to wait with things crushing you. He's asking you to wait because he's still moving and he is still working. He's still moving. He's still working. And so, yes, we can say, I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, but your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will fear no evil. Because even though I wait, I'm not waiting with a burden smashing me anymore. I know that when I'm waiting, my God is working and my God is moving. Trust is not earned quickly. Sometimes it's found in the waiting process. Here's another thing, and the second thing that I want to talk about today, that trust is not. Trust is not found in the loudest voices. In the book of 1 Kings, there's a prophet named Elijah who is on the verge of suicide. He is struggling. And God says, I've got a word for you. And at first there's a mighty wind, but God's voice is not in the wind. And then there's a mighty earthquake, but God's voice is not in the earthquake. God, there's, then there's a big fire. God's voice is not in the fire. There's earth, there's wind, there's fire. Band name, huh? Pretty good idea. But then there's a small, gentle whisper. And Elijah found the voice of the Lord in the small, gentle whisper. There are some loud voices out there, aren't there? Are they helping? Are they doing anything? I mean, seriously. The biases of cable news, are they actually helping? When we watch them, when we read the blog posts, when we read the sources from places that we know are trying to pass an agenda, don't we feel it in our hearts, whether it's on the right or the left or the top or the bottom or wherever it might be? Don't we feel it? I'm being used. Do they actually have an answer for the things that are on the rise in this world right now? Are they actually helping? Because as their voices are getting louder, we're also seeing these problems. These are very real problems in our world today. Mass shootings, gun violence, domestic violence, mental illness, lost men, more on that in just a second, suicide and spiritual apathy. There are so many voices that are just pounding into our ears these days, and they're not helping these things. They're enforcing these things. When are we just going to say enough? I'm not listening to these loud voices anymore. Excuse me, I'm speaking loudly right now. I should really tone it down. I get passionate about it. You want to know the truth? I have my biases too. I have my biases, and I want to name my biases because if I don't name my bias, my bias could very quickly become an idol. And an idol is anything that I put before God. Do you want to know the truth? I mean, I'm like really praying about this and really carefully thinking about it because I feel very vulnerable when I preach in front of you. Not, not in a bad way. You love me and you care for me, so we're family and all that stuff. But, but let me tell you the truth. My bias, I don't like guns. I, I don't. I don't think people who own guns are evil. But me personally, like, I, it's, not, it's not for me. It's not my thing, okay? That's my bias. I'm naming that bias not to tell you what I think we should do. I'm naming that bias because I want to call it out and not let it be my idol. I want to turn to the word of God. I want to turn to the truth. I want to listen to the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit that reminds me about the truth of Jesus' teaching. I don't want to be persuaded by the loud voices in this world or my own bias. I want to listen to the word of God. It is very, very rare that I will share with you my personal bias, but I'm sharing you with my personal bias because I know that I have fallen for the trap of calling it my idol as well. I don't want to do it. I don't want to fall for that trap. I hope you don't either. Here's, here's, here are the facts. Here's the reality. Out of mass shooters, out of this massive problem that we have, one of the things that's making this world very tough right now, 98% are men. What's up with that? 
Like, that's not just coincidental, is it? What kind of examples are we setting for men in this world? Tell them that you can get away with hitting women, abusing people. As long as you're successful, as long as you're awesome, as long as you're strong, as long as you're good, we'll just bypass it. We've got a problem with the way that men are acting in this world, using power, trying to do anything we can to gain it. Out of the mass shooters, 60% have a criminal record, 65% are mentally ill, 50% acquired guns legally, 50% acquired guns illegally. This is a convicting list to me because it convicts even my own biases. For all of us, it convicts our biases. But do you know what it really does? It reminds me that no matter, no matter how loud my voice gets, my voice will not be the one that fixes this. That is a complicated list. And we cannot solve it with just painting over the entire situation with one brush, can we? It's not going to happen that way. We can't. We have to love one another. We have to listen to one another. We have to lead from a place that, that reveals the example of Christ. Or are we listening to the example and following in the footsteps of society and culture that oftentimes tells us that thoughts and prayers are not enough? It's become so popular to say, your thoughts and prayers mean nothing. And I'm hearing more and more Christians say it. I'll even admit this. I'm hearing people, leaders in my own denomination saying it. And it doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit well. It makes me sick to think that Christians would say our prayers are meaningless. I'm fond of saying that if we want to change the world, we need to speak with the creator of the world first. And maybe even more importantly than speaking with the creator of the world, we need to listen to the creator of the world. Thoughts and prayers, oh, they matter. They matter. I understand James chapter 115 says that our faith without action is useless. Our faith without producing good deeds is a faith that is dead. I understand that. But where are we starting from? Are we starting with our own ideas, with our own biases, with our own vo voices? If we do that, and you hear my bias and I hear your bias, we will run away from each other. But if we believe that there is someone who is bigger, who can unite us and has real, real solutions and real hope and real salvation and real grace for the real problems that we're facing, then maybe we can actually join in this place together every Sunday anyway. Maybe we can actually get together in one another's homes. Maybe we can actually love one another. Maybe we can stop the hate. Maybe we can stop the violence. Maybe we can stop the prejudice. Maybe we can actually follow the example of Christ. Maybe we can listen to the helper that we're given on Pentecost Sunday that reminds us the truth of Jesus' teaching. The one that says the most important commandment you can follow is love God. And the way that you love God is you love your neighbor as yourself. We have to do this. We have no other option. We must take time with the creator of the world. You will never hear me say that our prayers don't matter. Our prayers matter because it's time spent with the creator of the world. And the creator of the world knows how to solve the problems of this world. And he's not going to stop until he does. That's his word. And his word is as good as done. It says this in the scriptures, to whom can you compare God? One image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold and decorated silver chains? So what's your idol? I mean, seriously, we mock prayer like it doesn't matter, but I mean, I don't know, what's yours? Is it a cable news source? 
Is it your favorite author? Is it your favorite pastor? Any of it. None of it compares to time spent with God. It continues and it says this on the next slide. He has Excuse me, this is now in Isaiah chapter 53. Excuse me, we're, we're, we're skipping ahead. In Isaiah chapter 53, we get a look into the heart of God. We look, get a look into the heart of Jesus. And we are reminded what God does when it feels like God is quiet. I understand that one of the biggest complications of prayers is that we don't feel like we're getting an answer. We've talked about that. But now I just want to name quickly what's happening when we're praying and we feel like God is quiet. Jesus was quiet too. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says he was oppressed and it's talking about the coming Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears, silent. So he did not open his mouth. Now, it's not talking about Jesus when he's a child. It's not talking about Jesus when he's teaching against the Pharisees. It's not talking about Jesus when he's facing his oppressors just from a teaching perspective or from a political perspective. It's talking about Jesus when he was put on trial for his death. When Jesus could have saved himself, just in one word, could have saved himself, he was quiet. He was quiet. When he could have saved himself, he was quiet. And when he was quiet, he was saving the world. When it seemed like Christ was the most silent, he was saving the world. When we are waiting, God is not sleeping. He's not forgetting. He's saving the world. There was a time just before this when Jesus, he knew it was time to pray. Now, how many of us would tell Jesus, Jesus, it's not time for thoughts and prayers. I mean, he's God. He probably knows what he's supposed to do, right? Just before Jesus was arrested, he said to his disciples, sit here and go over there while I pray. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know what that is? It's getting to the place of groaning. I don't have words. I need to go pray. Jesus was overwhelmed to where he had nothing else to say to his disciples. Instead, he went and he prayed. Our knee-jerk reaction when life gets tough is to speak and to explain and to blame. Jesus, the Son of God himself, went to pray. When his life got the toughest, he went to pray. When your life gets the toughest, in your personal life and in our community's life, when it gets the toughest, do not underestimate the power of prayer. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us, here's what you do when you don't have words. Well, you let that Holy Spirit speak for you. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. You know, when you don't understand what's happening in your soul to a point where you don't have words and you're breathing in and you're just hoping that a word's going to come out by the time that you exhale and it doesn't happen and all that happens is a... <gasps> you know what's so powerful and incredible about that? 
The word that you just spoke that you don't understand made perfect sense to your heavenly father. He knew exactly what your soul was screaming out for. He knows the words that your mouth can't translate. When we go ahead and we sigh and we grieve and we groan, we have a father who's listening and knows, and then he brings it into accordance with his own will. Sometimes when I'm praying my own words, I get distracted with my own thoughts. And I'm like, my goodness, why didn't I do the right thing? Well, Danny, you weren't listening to God. What if instead talking to, what, in, what if instead of talking at God so much, we listen to God? Maybe one of our misunderstandings of prayer is it's all about us and all about what we say and all about what we get out of it. But instead, what if prayer is also about listening to God? And when there is that groan, we remove ourselves. Right? Oh, you know, it's not my words anymore. This is great. You understand perfectly what that means. Your father knows the language of your groan. Your prayers matter. Your prayers make a difference. And your prayers can and should and need to lead to action. But before the action, let us spend time in prayer with our father. What is it that's inside of your heart this morning that can't be processed into words? Maybe it's the events of what's happened this week, but maybe it's something you've been carrying for a while. Maybe it's brand new news that you heard this week, a couple days ago, or this morning, or whatever it is that you're grieving that hasn't happened yet, but you just have a feeling it's going to happen. Go ahead and bottle all that up. Do it. Let's go ahead and do it. Let's bring it all in. Let's breathe it in. Let's breathe in the heaviness of it. And I don't have a word for it, so what do we do? We... Would you groan with me? Let's just groan. Ready? God just heard hundreds of prayers perfectly. He knows everything that you've done. He knows everything that's going on inside of you. And some of those groans are going to keep on going. Amen? <laughs> when you're groaning, your prayers aren't worthless. Your prayers are powerful because God understands. Go ahead and groan to him. The Spirit prays with those kinds of groans that words just simply can't express. Trust your Father to hear them. Trust him to meet you in them. And trust him to lead you to a new place. Church, I'm putting down my bias. I am laying down my idols. And I'm here to listen to the word of God. When life gets tough, I need to listen to the word of God before anything else. Will you join me? Church, can we listen to the word of God together?